0: What Was That Like? Contains adult language and content and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to What Was That Like? I'm your host, Scott Johnson. This is a show where we talk to regular people, people just like you or just like me, who have found themselves in an extremely unusual situation. We'll hear their stories and get inside their head because we all want to know, what was that like? More information about each episode at whatwasthatlike.com. Here we go. I've lived in areas where it gets really cold. And I've lived where it's warm most of the time. I've lived up north in Ohio and in Maine, and now I'm in sunny Florida. I definitely prefer the warmer climate. But today's story is about being cold. Really, really cold. Dan Burton brought his fat tire bike to the coast of Antarctica, and he biked from there to the South Pole. That's 750 miles, and it's uphill. And it's against the wind. And it's in temperatures that are colder than just about anyone would be comfortable with. But he did it. And in fact, he was the first one to do it. And actually, it happened five years ago, and no one has done it again since then. At least not at the time we recorded this conversation, which is early 2019. And I learned something really interesting. The elevation at the South Pole is 9,300 feet but only 300 feet of that is actual land. The 9,000 feet of elevation on top of that land is solid ice. So at the South Pole, Dan was standing on ice that was almost two miles thick. In fact, during our conversation, he mentions that he actually walked over some mountains, but he wasn't able to see them because he was actually on top of them because of that thick layer of ice. I'm always intrigued by stories of human endurance like this, so I really loved hearing this story firsthand from Dan. And fortunately for all of us, he also blogged and recorded video throughout the expedition, and he's written a book about it. So links to all of those things will be in the show notes for this episode at whatwasthatlike.com slash 19, because this is episode 19. And if you like this podcast, you're welcome to buy me a coffee what was that like.com forward slash coffee, and now here's my conversation with Dan.
1: What was the coldest temperature during this trip? You know, I I don't really know the answer to that because I didn't have a I didn't have a thermometer with me, <laughs> extra weight that I wow. didn't need. That <laughs> That's incredible! You're going to the South Pole and you don't know uh, what the temperature is each yeah, day. That's look- interesting. I looked at, uh, cause they do have a weather station there and I, I kind of looked it up on, on the web, on the web and, and I think that it was somewhere around 40 below when I was at the South pole. And, uh, definitely this, when I was at the South pole was the coldest, uh, um, of the trip. So I, it was somewhere around 40 below. That just sounds,
0: uh, miserable actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You get
1: used to it, and it's not as bad as it seems.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, and I kind of experienced that. We lived in Florida, and then my wife's from Maine, and we went and lived in Maine for 13 years. And you're right. You know, I I don't really care for the cold temperatures myself. I would prefer Florida. My wife prefers the cold temps of up north. But you're right. The human body is pretty adaptable, and wherever you're at, it, you kind of get used to it.
1: Yeah, I had a guy that used to come into my bike store a lot. He kind of was a lot of what... Drove me to do this anyway. He was trying to tell me that uh, the cold is kind of a state of mind, and and I think there's a, I mean there's obviously real things to cold, but I think there's a bit of that. If you know, I I went there expecting it to be super cold and miserable, and and when I got there, you know, I just accepted that it was cold and and it was okay.
0: Yeah, it's what you expected. So, all right. Well, what what was the earliest germ of an I- of an idea that you had about? doing this what brought this on
1: um about doing this specifically um would have been uh i had bought some uh, fat bikes and uh had been riding them across uh, utah lake when it was frozen and uh about that time eric larson uh started uh trying to uh bike to the south pole and one of the guys that i worked with at the bike shop uh told me about this and so i started following him on on uh, his uh blog, reading his blog and, and following his expedition, and so that was kind of the beginning of the whole thing. I don't think, and then I had some guy that the guy that I was talking about earlier. He, he came into the bike store and kept saying that he was going to win the lottery, and when he did, he was that we were going to um, bike to the South Pole together. And there's no lottery in Utah, and neither of us. Ever enter the lottery, so that was never going to happen. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> so much for that financing idea. <laughs> yeah, so so somewhere along that uh, thing, it kind of kind of got me going. My my had my son was really strange, um, wanting to do uh, all kinds. He had all these ideas of things he wanted to do Kickstarter projects for, and so at some point I thought, well, maybe I could Kickstarter this, and and that's when I started really thinking about doing it myself. Was when I thought maybe I could pay for this with kickstarter
0: did the kickstarter work
1: no <laughs> okay <laughs> i, I, I um, kickstarter you set your goal for how much money you need and uh and if you don't meet that goal you get nothing so i got nothing from kickstarter
0: i know the gofundme works differently it's whatever you get up to they send you a check for that i right. think so I- uh, they're all a little different
1: yeah, I did a, a GoFundMe uh, thing afterwards, and I can't, I don't know exactly how much money I got from GoFundMe. I guess I could go look it up on GoFundMe. It's still up there. But, you know, it, 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 I got some money from it, but not enough to be significant, statistically significant. <laughs> so, when you
0: first started thinking, maybe I really, maybe I really will do this, what was your physical condition at the time? How long did you give yourself for training?
1: I, I didn't train for it. I had been a computer programmer and had been in pretty bad shape—a little overweight, had high cholesterol, high blood pressure—and when I kind of got a panic, I panicked. I thought I was going to die, and I got into biking. And so after that, I I started doing these uh, um, crazy long um, mountain mountain bike rides to start with, and then and then road bike rides. So I was doing like two hundred mile. Road bike, it was officially a race, but I do that like once a year. And so, you know, I could, I could jump on my mountain bike and go do a hundred mile, um, mountain bike, um, ride, you know, at any time. And so physically condition wise, I was okay. The biggest thing for me, um, was that, uh, a fat bike, the, the pedals are wider, you know, further apart than normal to be able to fit around that big fat tire. And so it, it gives you a, just a different uh, way that it's going to work the muscle, the muscles and the joints and everything. And so just to make sure that I wasn't going to have a problem with that for the year before I did this, uh, all I ever, I, all I rode was my uh, fat bike. I, I put away my mountain bike, put away my road bike and didn't ride them for a year. Everything I did was on my fat bike. I did triathlons. I, you know, I did everything on a fat bike. <laughs>
0: So that was primarily how you trained, then, just to make sure you were okay on that bike for extended periods
1: of time. Yeah, and so I was I was putting in lots of riding time, just what I do. Um, and so I didn't do any specific thing that way. And and the thing was, is I was I, I, I had a bike shop I I was running I own you know that I owned and uh, and so I was at the bike shop you know probably at least ten hours a day six days a week and so it didn't leave me a, a lot of chance to uh, do a lot of training it would have been really cool to uh be able to take a, a fat bike and go out and and uh, ride it somewhere and, and kind of work out some uh of the things with pulling a sled and how that all could work but i had no opportunity because when i started really decided to do it was a uh, late winter and so um you know that it was kind of the end of the the snowy snow bike season and and i didn't have the i didn't have the ability to go you know up to alaska or or down you know somewhere where i could uh actually test things out so i just kind of had to uh go off of what i knew
0: yeah you just train with what you can train and uh or train as you can and then just hope for the best i guess
1: yeah and to some extent you're going to get out there and and you're pushing hard every day and and you know as long as you can keep going you're it it it's it, it, i i guess basically I, the thing i had to physically to be able to do it is i had to be able to ride all day you know doing a, a workout a hard workout all day for you know 13 14 hours um straight and and if i could do that then i would be fine
0: right but and but you know you think typically in training uh, you, you know you would do a hard workout like that and maybe do that two days, but then you take a rest day so your muscles can rebuild, and then you do it again. But in your case, you're, there's no rest days. You, yeah. you know 51 days
1: straight, right? Yeah. Well, so on um, the first two, two uh, Sundays, that's true. The rest of it, I took uh, Sundays as uh, a rest day. Um, oh, okay. okay. Not, not because I needed the rest as much as uh, just for religious pur- purposes.
0: I, you know, I read all of your blog posts as you documented this trip, both before and during and and after, uh, I understand you had frostbite as a child. So going into extreme cold temperatures like this, did that scare you at all?
1: Well, yeah. So when I was a little kid, I was riding on my mom's, uh, shoulders and the hood of my parka fell off. And so I I was too young to, you know, and whatever. So, so the hood, the parka fell off and, and I got uh, frostbite on my ears. And so, for me, growing up, uh, Halloween was like the most painful uh, holiday because you'd go out trick or treating in that cold air, and I'd come in afterwards, and my ears would hurt so bad. And so, but as a, as I got older and older, that became less of an issue. And so, yeah, frostbite was something I was concerned about. I was worried, you know, I don't want to come back and be missing fingers and toes. And so, I was I was very. Diligent in uh, trying to make sure I protected myself uh, from frostbite at all times.
0: Yeah, that's a that's a big, definitely a critical factor. Now, before we get into the actual trip, there was one one of your blog posts. I'm just going to actually read this blog post, talking about the mental aspect of this trip, and what you wrote is this: One of my faults is that I don't know when to quit. When it comes to this expedition, I believe that fault becomes an advantage. However, my normal tendency to continue in spite of the conditions may not be enough. So I'm playing a bit of a mind game with myself. I'm intentionally building an attitude of continuing as long as even the remotest possibility of success still exists. Quitting can just not be an option. So I'm fostering in myself the belief that I will succeed. There will be some who will say the challenge is too hard, that for some reason I'm not worthy of such an expedition and that's fine they can believe what they want but i must believe that i will complete the expedition so how how big of a factor
1: was the mind game in reaching this goal i, I think that's uh probably one of the biggest factors um i think you know the, eric larson had tried it the year before and and, the, and a lot of what i wrote there was in response to uh what i was trying to do i i mean i had been trying to do that and people were criticizing me for my attitude saying I was a- arrogant and it wasn't an arrogance It was an intentional thing because uh, eric Looked like to me from the outside that he was doing well and he could he should be able to make it But as as I read his blog and stuff I kept seeing this uh, self-doubt in there and whether i'm right or not To me that seemed like part of the reason why he didn't make it and so so for me i'm looking at okay why, why did Eric not make it? And, and what things do I have to change so that I can? And, and so that was, to me, one of the things I was saying, okay, I cannot have this, um, add, I can't let any attitude of failure enter into my planning and what I'm working on, because there's just no, it's too risky to have that in there. I had to have an attitude of success or, or, you know, something this difficult. If you think you might fail, you probably will. Well, I, you know, I'm of the same
0: way. You know, we met, we talked a little bit before uh, before we started recording here, and I've done some ultra marathons myself and long distance running. It's amazing to me that you can deliberately make your mind believe something just by saying it or by doing something. Uh, I've I've found that if I'm if I'm out several hours training and I just don't feel good, I've found that I can just deliberately smile. Even though I don't feel like smiling, just force yourself to smile. And for some reason,
1: it just makes you feel better. It's like, well, okay, things maybe aren't so bad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of things. I don't know. There's a lot more mental aspect to something like this than what you might think.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just as important as the physical, I think. Okay. So let's talk about the, the, the trip itself. Can you describe the terrain? I understand you're starting at Hercules Inlet, which is by the coast. And the South Pole is more in the geographical center of Antarctica. And you are going from sea level to 9,300 feet. And can you just talk a little bit about that or what you what you expected that to be like?
1: Yeah. And so um, Hercules Inlet, um, it's, it's uh, on the um, Ron Ice Shelf. And so so it's technically on the ocean <laughs> but it's frozen. And so so it, you know when they dropped me off at uh, Hercules Inlet I could look north and you know just a frozen ocean as far as I could see. So so it's technically the coast but there wasn't any water anywhere nearby. And so I'm starting at sea level and the first thing you got to do is climb up and and I know this from you know reading and and reading other people's blogs and, and doing some research the first thing you got to do is climb up from sea level up over up up into the mountains basically up on into the interior of antarctica so it's a pretty big climb to start with and the thing that uh made it even more difficult is it was um pretty soft snow and so that first climb up so it was so difficult it's i mean i can't i bet you i can't even imagine how difficult it was anymore because it's been too long (laughs) but but it was it was more difficult than anybody could possibly imagine and i knew that going in that it would be it would be harder than i could possibly imagine and it definitely was harder than even that and so so it was a pretty hard climb up in and most of that i had to get off my bike and push and and a lot of times it was I, I would be putting my my chest against the handlebar and pushing with everything I could to to uh, push the bike up these hills um, because there's it's not only uphill and the snow and soft and everything, but there's a headwind the whole way. And so you're going. <laughs> oh, the, what a what a bonus. Huh? Yeah. There, you're going in this strong headwind and and it was just it was killer. And uh, I had to make sure I didn't have anything in my pockets in my coat up there on the chest because I think I actually had like a GPS or something. Uh, one of my GPSs, I had several GPS units with me and uh, cracked the screen and everything because it was in there and, and the pushing on it with my chest. So it was it was extremely difficult. Then you get up into the interior. And I figured, well, you know, w- once I get in, there's actually a route that they use to um, drag fuel to halfway so that they can resupply or refuel airplanes and so i can get up on that route that they that they're using to do that and when i get on onto that route then it's going to be easier and, and i'm going to be able to go okay well i got up to where where that was and it's like you know the snow was drifting through it and, and it wasn't any better and and uh and then and then the other thing you think well it's you're going from sea level to 9300 feet so that's 9300 feet of climbing basically over uh 750 miles you spread that out that's not that steep of a climb but the problem was is it wasn't just you know a a slow steady climb it was up and down and up and down and up and down the whole time and 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 it was so frustrating i got so mad at my gps at times because it would say i was going downhill and i was working so hard to go downhill and and it's like, there's no way this is going downhill. And and there was one time I just chucked my GPS across the ice saying this is this, – I'm so, so upset with it. But it was right. I mean, I was going up and down and up and down. And so it's kind of this – up and down with uh, several, there's a couple, you know, at the beginning, there was a pretty big climb to get into the interior of Antarctica. And then there's a mountain range that goes uh, through, through Antarctica. And there's a pretty big climb to get up over that mountain range, which I never saw the mountain range because it is completely buried in ice.
0: Yeah. That's, that's one of the interesting factors here that I didn't realize until I was doing research for this is that, you know, the, the land itself is only about 300 feet above sea level at at the the south pole yeah yeah at the south pole right and but yet there are you're walking on ice and not just ice but two miles thickness of ice yeah that's just incredible
1: yeah um the statistics i I might get this slightly wrong but i think it's something like 90 percent of the fresh water in the world is in antarctica frozen in the ice
0: Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing, two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science and all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try.
1: Trust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1, Daily Symbiotic, at seed.com slash what, code 25what.
0: I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV, and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout for 50%
1: off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com slash what.
0: So the bike that you... Describe how what you were carrying or what your gear and your load was like. You had the bike and then uh, how did you carry all your stuff?
1: Yeah, so the... Um, when Eric had tried it, he tried using panniers. So basically bags that are mounted on, on the front and back wheels. And he had all his stuff packed in there. And, uh, as I was reading his stuff, it sounded like, you know, the wind resistance of that. Cause it makes a pretty big wind profile sounded like that could have, you know, that maybe if I put it down in a sled behind me that they'd slip through the wind better. And so, um, I had, uh, decided to take, uh, two sleds. And so I had two sleds that I I was pulling from behind my bike. So I had rope tied to, I had a mount I created that hooked onto my rear axle and then ropes from that back to one sled and then from the one sled to the other. And, and, um, I had some people questioning the idea of two sleds instead of what, you know, you should be able to fit everything in one sled. The, The thing was, is I could, I could put everything in one sled. I could put it in two sleds, and I actually had two panniers on my bike. So I had, when I got there, I had a lot of flexibility in how to set things up. Um, I could put almost, I could put a large percentage of my gear in in the panniers, and then leave the sled one or two sleds pretty lightweight. Or I could take and put everything into one sled, or I could mix that up all I wanted. And what I found worked best was and and at the halfway where they refuel planes i i was able to say I don't need panniers. So so what I found best was to keep the bike absolutely as light as possible. So so I threw away the panniers. You know, I didn't throw them away. I, I sent them back on the plane at the halfway point, the panniers and the rack and, and all that, and, and just used the two sleds. So that's what worked best. And I could have put everything in one sled, but it, when the sleds are sinking into the snow. And the, again, the more they can stay up on the snow and keep from breaking through that crust, the better you glide. And so it better to put it into two sleds and have it slide on top rather than in one sled and have it sink down in the snow further. And so, you know, just going into it, I, I knew that this, this was like on the job training because nobody had ever done this. And what the best setup and the best way to do this was an unknown thing. And you could, you could get some idea by trying to say, okay, what are people doing that are doing the I did a rod on a bike or other things, but the conditions in Antarctica are unique to Antarctica, and and there's only the only way you're really going to know what works well in Antarctica is to try it in Antarctica.
0: So now uh, you've you've given that information. Now whoever is whoever eventually uh, does this and and maybe breaks your record will have that information as an advantage to start with. I'm sure yeah, they yeah, appreciate Yeah, that'd,
1: that. that'd be cool. Um, there's one record they can't break. I, I'm the first, and you can't break that. But That's can, right. You can do it faster and better and all all that. And I hope somebody does. So far nobody has, but I, I, I hope someday somebody uh comes out and does it uh, you know, does it better than what I did. It's inevitable, I think.
0: So t- starting right off the bat, you this on day one, December the second, twenty thirteen, about an hour, you 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 were about an hour in and you had gone less than a mile, and you thought you forgot your camera. Yeah. Can you talk about that
1: a little bit. Uh, it was kind of, you know, I guess I, I, I'm bad at forgetting things. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I just do that kind of stuff. And so, so as I started, I'm, I'm going and I'm like, Oh man, cause when I, when I got dropped off, I, we did some filming and stuff when the plane dropped me off and got some film of the plane taken off and stuff like that. And then I, you know, packed everything in my bags and headed out. And then I thought, oh man, did I really get my camera packed in there? And, and so, you know, it's kind of like that that uh, thing. Did I really remember to close the garage door? <laughs> and so I ha- I was, I was like, oh man, you know, I got to, uh, I had to, I, you know, check this now. So I had to stop and set up my tent and get in. And then once I started going through my gear, it's like my camera was there, which which was nice. But it also made a a good to get me. Off, I didn't. I, you know, you don't want to start. You stay at the place you get dropped off that first uh, night, anyway. Um, there's no night, but anyway, that first night, and you don't want to stay there. So it's good to get in. I was hoping I had I had all kinds of um, visions of grandeur. I don't know what you'd call it. I, I always thought I was going to do so well. So when I got dropped off, I look up and I see the mountains out out in the distance, and I'm thinking, you know, first day, I'm going to get up and over and and, and out to those mountains. yeah yeah you know a week later i'm still working at it (laughs) well hey you're right you got to stay
0: positive think think the best right yeah were there any other surprises in those first
1: few days or it was just just slogging forward as expected (laughs) again i already said it it was so difficult it was it was just so hard and and i knew it was i did um i had uh the the, i guess the thing that was kind of weird to me is there was a guy who uh was trying to set the record for being able to ski from, from where I got dropped off to the South pole in the shortest amount of time. And uh, he's one of the problems in Antarctica is the earlier in the season, you start the softer, the snow is going to be. And so he started maybe, you know, he, when he started, the snow is too soft and it, the conditions were bad and, and stuff. And so he wasn't getting the distance that he wanted to get, you know the speed he was needing to get to break the record, so he turned around and came down. And we p- crossed, uh, you know, going opposite directions. And looking at you know, as he goes back and, and just how hard and, and how bad it was for me going up this thing, I'm thinking, what kind of idiot would ever do this twice? <laughs> 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 and so, so, so it, was, it was amazing to me that he would turn around, go back to the bottom, and, and try it again because and 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 maybe a lot of that was because pushing a bike up the hill and and all that went into that was uh, more difficult than skiing up a hill up the hill. but, but uh, it was it wasn't surprising, but I guess the thing that was surprising to me was that, uh, he would turn around and, and go back and do it again. That, but the other thing that was interesting about that is, uh, w- shortly, like probably like less than an hour after he passed going the other direction and I'm following his ski trail, ski trail, which makes a nice, easy navigation thing for me I don't have to worry about what direction I'm going. Just follow his, his ski tracks. And as I'm doing that, I step down and my leg falls into a crevasse. And and on the same path that he had skied. I mean, you can. See, I, I got a picture of it, and you can see his ski tracks going right next to the hole that I fell in. And and so so that was one of the things that was uh, known up front that this was uh, a an, an extra level of danger in this because I know I'm going to have to get off the bike and push at points, and the places I'm going to have to push are the probably the places that are going to be the most dangerous as far as crevasses are concerned because the crevasses are going to be in those places where you're coming over an and edge and, and stuff where the ice is moving more. And so it's the, the most dangerous place to be on foot was, was where I was most likely going to have to push, when, and, and it was where I was pushing. And so I, I fell in. I don't know how big the crevasse was. I don't know if it was big enough to actually fall completely in um, one leg fell in and I, I was able to pull myself up uh, using my bike and I could see some nice hard blue ice I'd uh, afford. And so I, I quickly got up on that and didn't dare go back and get a picture because it was, uh, you know, I don't didn't want to be there for the rest of my life. No, nah, no way. Which wouldn't have been too long. <laughs> right, right.
0: Well, in talking about a crevasse, you know, that's <clears throat> that's a word that's kind of specific to this type of, a, an expedition, you know, when you, when the, when the ice moves and, and separates and creates these big gaping holes, some of sometimes which are visible and other times they're not that visible. You literally, the danger was to just fall in and, and who knows how far you would fall. And
1: then you're just there. There's n- nobody could come and get you. Right. Well, yeah. And so, um, there's a video out there, um, I think it's mostly an ad for iridium, but uh, there's a lady who uh, had gone a few years before I did, and she had uh, done some bad things as far as the way she pr- planned her route and mixed two routes together anyway. So so it sent her across these crevasses that were known to be there. And so she goes across that, and she did. She fell in, she, I, you know dropped in far enough that uh, she had to uh, work her way up and be able to poke a hole in the crevasse above where she could get back up to poke a hole with the her ski pole and then get a sag- satellite signal out through that and and they actually did get in and rescue her <laughs> and, uh, and then she continued on and and completed her uh, trip to the south pole so yeah it's possible to get uh, rescued if you can uh, get a good signal out to, to a satellite. And, and if it's not a whiteout, so they can actually come and get you. But, uh, yeah. And, and so it's funny because, you know, there's a, a few things about this expedition. If I, if I go back and watch and stuff, uh, they'll just bring me to tears and watching that video from her, just, it's very emotional for me, even though it's probably not that big of a deal, but for me, it, it really hits. And, and just that whole idea of being in a crevasse and dying there, it's not a good idea. Right. Right. I, I watched that video. I think you have it linked to or embedded on
0: one of your blog posts. I watched that video and boy, what a great ad for that, uh, for Iridium, Yeah, you know, the, uh, the cell phone, the or satellite, it's a satellite phone, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, she was amazed. She was down in this crevasse, not able to get out on her own. And she- gets her phone out and she's got like five bars, a perfectly strong signal. So she's able to talk to someone that's got to be the, the biggest relief in the world. And I'll have a link to that video on the show notes for this uh, episode as well. So, so people can watch that. Yeah.
1: That's an amazing video to me. And so, and so, but that that also brings to a point that there, you know, I have things in place that uh, in an emergency situation, there is a backup and a plan to uh, be able to get me out of there. But on on that, uh, you know, the, they can fly in and, and rescue you and stuff, but they can't do that if it's a whiteout condition. And so so the weather conditions in Antarctica are extreme difficult. And there. I mean, there were days, I know there was at least a three-day period, probably even longer than that periods of time at which if something happened, they they couldn't have gotten me to me for 3 or 4 days because the weather would not have permitted it and so so there's a certain amount of danger in and 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 uh you know I have to uh be able to uh survive on my own for however long it's going to take for them to be able to get there
0: that just in itself that's got to be a little scary you know
1: you you think it should be but for some reason I I I don't know I I don't think I was as scared as maybe I should have been
0: now when you're talking about them uh, you're referring to the company ALE. What does that stand for? A- Antarctic Logistics and Expeditions. And they were really your your the their cost was the primary or the majority of the cost of this trip, right? Cuz they you didn't bring all of your supplies. They they met you how many times throughout the trip or they well, dropped things, right?
1: Yeah, they didn't they didn't meet me as much as they um they I always say fly in, but sometimes it wasn't actually flying to get there because like, when they're dragging the fuel out to the, the fuel stop, they, they can bring it there and drop it off along the way. But basically what they would do is they would fly into um, some place along my route, um, dig a hole in the ice, bury my stuff in the ice, put a black flag on it, give me the GPS coordinates of where, where they put it, and then tell me to go play geocaching for life.
0: Yeah, geocaching uh, for your very survival. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, and so so it, you know it, I, I had three resupplies that we did that way, and and but so ALE, you, you look at it, and so I, I can't. I think I'm not supposed to say exactly how much it was because I think that's in my contract with them, but I can't remember exactly off the top of my head how much it was, but it's somewhere in that sixty to seventy thousand. Um, dollars that i'm paying them and if you look at what they're doing they're flying me from chile down to union glacier they have a camp that they put up there with tents and and a whole th- thing that they're running there to support everything and a communications uh a tent and and uh, everything that goes into that and it's like amazing what an awesome uh, camp they put there at the union glacier and then they're um they're doing my food supplies. Uh, I'm calling into them every day on a satellite phone, giving them updates, and they're keeping track of me. And, and if something happens, then they can come and get me. And so you look at everything that they're putting in, and flying me back to Union Glacier after I'm done and then flying me back to uh, Chile. And you put it all all together and say, how much would it cost to just do that? If they were just doing that for me alone, and there's no way they could do that for what, what they're doing and the only way that it's as cheap as it is, which I know that doesn't sound cheap, but the only way that it's as cheap as it is is because they've also got people going and, and uh, doing, doing things like going climbing Mount Vissen, or um, going to see penguins or people that just want to fly to the South Pole. And so there's all these other things that are going on that I think reduce the cost that make it so that uh, an expedition like mine is even possible you still
0: got to do all the hard work, but, but they've got all the experience to tell you, you know, this is how you plan it and, you know, this is the way it'll work. So that, right. that, that's a, what, a, what an amazing service. Yeah. While you were out there, did you listen to music or podcasts or how did you occupy your mind all that time?
1: Yeah. So when I started, I, I started just silent. I had an iPod with uh, some music on it, but I started not listening to it. And so I spent, I don't know, maybe a week or two before I, I started listening to music. And it was really an amazing thing. I, I, I got, you get out there and there's, there's just nothing making any noise at all. You know, even the wind, the wind, unless it's hitting me or my equipment is making no noise because it's not hitting anything else. And so it's this silence that I've never experienced anywhere else, just this complete silence. And, and, and to be able to experience that was amazing. But then um, later on, I started uh, using the music and, and music really helped me a lot. And, and, and there's a lot of songs that have a well, maybe not a lot, but there's there's certain set of songs that have a special meaning to me because of uh, how I interacted with them during uh, my expedition. So so I've got a, a set of songs that uh, just have a, a special meaning to me because of that. In thinking about this and then just watching the videos of you as you recorded
0: kind of your video journal uh, throughout this trip, which I recommend everybody watch. It's just awesome to see what it was like out there and how you describe what you did that day and that kind of thing. But, you know, I can't help but draw the comparison uh, with this trip and the movie uh, Castaway with Tom Hanks, you know, with him being by himself and – you know, he had that toothache. He had to knock out his own tooth. That's just kind of, I just cringe when I think about that. <laughs> but did you, while you were out there all alone, did you have any kind of medical emergencies at all? I
1: just about killed myself, I, I guess. I, you know, in the tent, you can never really get upright. And so at best, and most of the time I was sitting there eating while kind of laying on my stomach. And and I'm doing that and I uh, got the hiccups, which happens and and uh i continued to eat anyway and while i was eating i you know hiccup and i got some food stuck in my throat and every time i'd try to cough it out i'd just about get it out and i'd get hiccup again and it would relodge into my throat and and i just kept going on and on and there's like nobody to help me and 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 that was probably my biggest major (laughs) (laughs) medical just about died from the hiccups because you know there's nobody there to help and whatever and and i was going to choke to death and that would be you know a pretty dumb thing you know I, I, one of the things with ALE is I, I i call into them every day and if i failed to call into them then they would you know send somebody out to find me and you know see what what the deal was and so i would be pretty embarrassing to say okay, oh, well look there he is he he choked to death
0: <laughs> it's a little late for the heimlich maneuver at that yep. point yeah did you use solar power to power your electronics yes. and stuff
1: yeah i i had uh some zero uh solar panels i had bought and uh yeah i was charging i I did have a the the problem is is lithium ion batteries don't work well in super cold temperatures sometimes i had a hard time charging things and, and actually if you uh I don't know, maybe you can get it from my blog or not, because the posts eventually ended up. But there was a time period uh, after my main battery I was using, I had a little Wi-Fi adapter that let me uh, connect from my uh, phone. Well, not phone, uh, iPod, and to the Wi-Fi adapter and then to my, to my satellite phone. And that battery for that adapter eventually ran out, and, and I couldn't get it to recharge and and it couldn't recharge just because it's so cold. It's hard to charge things.
0: And that's just one of those things that you don't know until you're out there and it
1: happens. Yeah, well, a lot of times you can get things to charge and stuff, but 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 that battery just. There were a couple batteries I just couldn't charge. It, it was kind of funny because uh, when well, I don't know, funny, but uh, when when I went a couple days with uh, no blog posts showing up on my blog um, people started calling my wife and saying, is he alive? Is he okay? And, and stuff. <laughs> and, and so, so it, uh, eventually I, um, I, I just started, uh, I'd, I'd, uh, write down my, my, uh, blog entry and then, uh, read it off to my wife who would, uh, put the phone on record and go play, uh, games with, uh, people and ignore me while I was, uh, <laughs> and then, then should transcribe that and put it up on onto the blog for me you had many types of support systems on this trip sounds like yeah um it's kind of funny because the, like uh just recently there was uh colin um o'brady who uh, did a expedition from coast to coast and being the first to do that uh, unsupported and i Whatever, basically saying unsupported, and there were, then there are people complaining. Well, you were getting advice about uh, what to eat and whatever, so that's not really unsupported. And and the reality is 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 you can't do something like this completely unsupported. And so their definition of unsupported is you don't have somebody physically being there helping you. How many hours of sleep did you usually get? Not enough. Um, <laughs> I, I I have I think. I, I sleep. I fall asleep really easily. I, I don't have any trouble sleeping normally. But uh, anybody that's done a lot of, if you do a lot of training and stuff, you get the get in that overtrained mode. Um, one of the symptoms of being overtrained is is uh, inability to sleep. And and I've done that outside of of this, but I was definitely suffering from that there, where I, where I'm I'm typically going thirteen. Or more hours a day, and and at and, and, and an extreme. I mean, at an an effort that I shouldn't. I mean, if I'm trying to say, okay, I'm going to do something at an effort that is sustainable, so I can go for 13 hours. That amount of effort to make it a sustainable was much less than what I had to do, and so so it just was uh, what should have been an unsustainable effort all day for 13 hours, and then and you're just so beat up from that that it takes a long time to get to sleep and so so i'm doing that uh and and setting up the tent and eating and making my blog entries and uh And calling into ALE and all that stuff. And so I was getting, I don't know, I didn't keep track of how many hours I was getting asleep, but it it just wasn't enough. And especially with that much work, you probably needed more than a normal eight hours of sleep. And I was getting, you know, less than that. And, and I just was having a hard time sleeping and I didn't think the 24 hours of daylight was going to be a problem for me, but it was. And so, and then the other problem was, is, um, you know, one of the ways to get around that is you take a, um, your sleeping bag and pull that up over your head and it's dark and, and, and then you're okay. But my sleeping bag, it was a nice new sleeping bag that I'd gotten. And it turns out I was allergic to the sleeping bag. Oh man. And so I could only pull the sleeping bag up, up to my chest and and I couldn't pull it up over my head. Otherwise I woke up in the morning all, all puffy and, and you know, hardly able to see. And so i pulled pull that over my up, up to my chest. And then I had my parka and I, that parka over my my head my body to kind of help but you know you wake up and I, I wake up typically several times during the night and you wake up and it's it's light and so you think it's time to get up but it's oh don't tell me 11 o'clock oh nope it's only 12 o'clock nope it's only 12 30 you know time to get going yet oh nope gotta go
0: back to sleep so all right and just because of where you were on the planet, the, the sun, it never went away. It was, it was light all the time.
1: Yeah. It, the sun's, um, just goes in a big circle around, around the horizon about, I think it's about 23 degrees above the horizon. And the reason I say 23 degrees is because, uh, there, there's this, uh, really cool effect when, uh, the ice, if you get any moisture in the air, it turns to ice and those ice crystals will float, uh, kind of sideways. And then the sun hits that, and it makes this really cool optical effect of a a couple rainbows and a halo. And and it's just an amazing sight. And that the bottom of that uh, first circle is 20, you know, the first circle is about 23 degrees out from the sun. And the bottom of that circle just hit the horizon. And so at uh, morning hours, um, the sun was about 23 degrees and, you know, and, and, when, where I started, it would probably get a few degrees higher when it's south in, or north of me and, a, and a few degrees lower when it's south of me. But then when you get to the South pole, it's just at the same, um, elevation around the horizon the whole time. Did you lose any weight during this trip? Uh, yeah. (laughs) So I can imagine. So one of the things that, uh, they asked ALE asked as I was uh, getting ready was how much weight I had put on in preparation.
0: Oh, so that's part of the preparation is to gain weight ahead of time.
1: That would, that was one of the things. And and I tried, um, I, but I was biking to and from work on my fat bike and and putting, and I, I just couldn't put on weight beforehand. I, I was eating as much as I could. And so I, um went in, I was in pretty good shape and not not quite as uh, much fat as I would have liked. When I got to the South Pole, I had absolutely zero fat left. And uh I my my body was basically consuming itself. I, I was uh burning off muscle mass. Um when I got back, you know, you're not gonna get uh undressed in Antarctica because, you know, it's kinda cold there and you can't take a shower or anything. So, you know, 51 days of, of that when I finally got back to the base camp in at uh union glacier and they have a shower then there and I get out and, and try to take a shower. And it's like, I looked like, uh, you know, something, one of those really terrible anorexic pictures you see or, or you know, like a starving child. And it just, it was just, I, I couldn't believe how, how bad I looked. Um, I lost too much weight. <laughs> and there was one story
0: that I read on the blog. Can you talk about when you were, when you, somebody gave you a bottle of Coke?
1: Yeah. <laughs> So, so I actually, at the halfway point, I had the ability to leave behind things that I didn't need because a plane could then fly it back, and and at that point I had extra food that I hadn't and and I had it wasn't really extra food because it was food I needed to eat, but the the reality was is is there, there's only so much you can eat, you know, y- your body can only digest a certain amount of calories. And so even though I needed more calories, there was only so much I could eat and, and digest. And so, Which that, is why
0: you lost that, all that weight.
1: Right. And so, so it was just impossible to get in as, enough calories in to what I was burning. And so I had extra food at that point, what I thought was extra food. And so I sent it back on the plane. And, and, and I, I calculated out how much I would need to make it to the, to the South Pole. And then I got a resupply. And when I got that resupply, again, I had more food than what I thought I needed. And so I was, you know, you make up a a batch of food and and you eat some of it and the rest of it goes in in a hole in the ice. And and so I was wasting food. And I was doing that because it was extra weight and and stuff. And and I calculated out and this is how long it's going to take me and I don't need that. Well, it was kind of a dumb thing to do. I, I did several dumb things, but that was one of the dumb things I did was wasted that food. And so... at the end things got didn't work out the whiteouts and and the snow got soft and 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 I was just I was just so exhausted I just wasn't getting the the distance I needed and so I I could have stretched out my food and made it to the south pole but I was surviving on at that point uh, a couple uh, small meals a day in fact one day my meal one one evening for, for dinner, I took in and, and took all, all the empty packages from the food I'd eaten before and, and found the little pieces of frozen stuff in the corners and of the package and, and ate that. And that was my dinner.
0: Because you're carrying, obviously the, you eat a, eat a, f- eat, you, you eat food out of a package and you keep the package cause you don't just leave it on the ground.
1: You're carrying it all with you. Yeah, everything you take with you has to come back out. You know, you see somebody uh, surviving on the streets and eating out of the garbage. You know, it's not quite the same thing, but I still, I, I know what it's like to scavenge through my garbage to find something to eat. And so, and so it turned out I had like a couple meals left and it's like, I could have take, eaten one, gone. My, my, I was in a, pros, a, a state of, I was trying to eat a meal and get like 12 miles out of that meal and then eat the next meal and get 12 miles out of it. But the problem was is there wasn't enough calories in one meal to get 12 a full 12 miles. I I I would completely be exhausted and and out, out of energy and, and basically collapse on the ice because I I just was out of energy so there because there wasn't enough meal in there. And the thing was is I was close to the end and so I said okay, I'm going to eat my last two meals instead of spacing them out. And then I, I c- talked to AOE and said, okay, I'm completely out of food. And they said, okay, we'll send Hannah down um, on a snowmobile. She'll come down um, and give you some more food. And so how far out were you at that point? About 20 miles. Okay. And so she came down with some food. And one of the things that she gave me was a bottle of Coke. And it was frozen solid bottle of Coke. And it's like, oh, man, I mean, the c- bottle of Coke never looked so awesome. And and I took that bottle of Coke, and I, I set up my tent and, and went through the food that she gave me. Um, I, ate some, uh, I ate a bunch of chocolate bars, and and I think the first chocolate bar I had was uh, one that had, like, coffee in it, and I don't do coffee. And I think coffee tastes terrible, and and it's also a religious reason I don't do coffee. And and I take a bite of that, and it's the coffee, and it's like, I don't care, and I just shoved the whole thing down my throat. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it was so... <laughs> Forgive me, God. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm not wasting that. And and so as I, so I ate that, and, and while I'm doing that, I, I set up my pot and, and get some water boiling, and I put the can- bottle of Coke in that and got the bo- water boiling and melted the Coke, got the Coke all nice and warm. And then um, when I started going, I, I I didn't wear my parka while I was riding because I'm working so hard, the parka would have been way too hot. I would have gotten sweaty, and, and that's very dangerous. And so I I would dress down while i'm biking because I was working so hard So I take my parka and I bury the that coke in there and pack it down deep into my sled So it'll stay nice and warm and I figure, you know, i'll, I'll do that and then at that, you know I, at the end of a long because it's like 20 miles left to go So after i've gone, you know 15 whatever miles and I need that extra boost i'll pull that uh, coke out and, and i'll drink it And and I get to where I decide okay now's the time I pull the coke out and it's still warm And so it's like oh cool And, and I, I open up the Coke and as I'm opening it up, it starts to freeze and, and I open it up and it's freezing and I'm drinking this Coke as fast as I can to try to keep it from freezing. And, you know, that whole brain freeze idea. And (laughs) so I'm drinking and, and the problem was, is, is, you know, I had gone two months with no carbonation. And so that, that carbonation was just burning my throat as it goes down. It was, it was, it was the hardest, hardest Coke, but I I was drinking as fast as I could because I wanted to get as much of it out as I could. And I got about half of it out before I couldn't get any more out. And so, yeah, it was, that, that's, that's my story. When people ask how cold it is, that's how, how, how cold it was.
0: (laughs) The Coke freezes before you can even drink half of it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So so the last day, this was January twenty-one of twenty fourteen. D-, d talk about describe reaching the goal or when you got to be within sight of the South Pole.
1: Yeah, so as I'm going, um, I'm going up and down. I'm I'm watching my GPS and and the GP because I know that South Pole's at ninety three hundred feet. And I've also read some blogs and stuff. So I know that you can see the um South Pole, what uh for a lot of people is about a day's travel were out from the south pole because you know 13 to 15 miles a day is actually a pretty good um day and so so it's about i knew about that far apart away i'd be able to see the south pole and so it, because there's a research base there and, and so you can see the research base and they have um a big telescope and and some stuff out out there that they're doing research with And so I knew you'd be able to see that. And, and so I'm watching my GPS and and I'm watching the elevation go from, you know, 87 or something and up and up and then back down and just getting so fresh because it keeps saying I'm going back and and it's like, I need just, just want to get up to 9,300 feet. And when I finally did, I got up to 9,300 feet and I looked off in the distance and I could see, I could see what, I wasn't sure at first if it was the South Pole station or if it was just Sistrugi uh, sestrugi and sestrugi are kind of like snow drifts that uh, form down there they're really amazing and i'm looking off and i see these and it's like the problem is is at that far south the sestrugi are just kind of non-existent and so I'm, I'm and so it's like well it could be or not and then after a little while it's like nope that that's it and so when i when i realized that's really it i could see the south pole i was i was it was the most uh, wonderful thing I, I had ever seen. And it was just like these three dots on the horizon. And, and so I, I'm, I'm just like bawling. It's just, this is so awesome. I, I can see it. I can see it. I can see the South pole. And so I, I I pull out my satellite phone and I call my wife and I can see it. I can see it. And, and she can, can't understand what I'm saying through the tears. You know, the tears of joy were very much there. I'm just, I'm just overwhelmed and stuff. And, and this is so awesome. And, and she's like, what, what? And the phone line drops. Because that's how most of my phone line phone conversations ended is with the line dropping on me, and so the like, phone line drops out on her, and 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 I continue on. But then for the next little way, because so the thing is, is when you're going to the South Pole, and they've got the research there, and they've got antennas buried in the ice, and they have this this uh, thing where they're studying neutrinos and all the all these different, you know, this this clean section in this place where they're studying CO2 and all this stuff. So, so you can't go into different regions because if you do, you're going to mess up the studies and there's a very specific route you have to take to get into the South pole. And, and what that means is basically I've got to kind of go not straight towards the pole. I got to go off to the side a little bit and then turn in, which basically meant that that, that means as I'm going, the South pole station is visible off to my right. And I had to, I had to kind of crane my head to the left a little bit and not look to the right because if I ever saw that thing, just the, <laughs> it was just so overwhelming, I'd just break down in tears again. And then eventually, <laughs> eventually you drop back down into this big bowl and and the, everything just you know the South Pole disappears and everything you can't see it anymore and you got this big drop you got to go down and then regain all that altitude again, and stuff. But but yeah, so it was just an amazing thing. I was so. I, it's impossible to just describe the joy of how awesome it was to, to see that. No, I'm done. I mean, I wasn't done. It was still, you know, 13 miles away. And so still a long, you know, probably about 13 hours worth of travel because I would, I, at this point, uh, I was back to having to push my bike most of the way because the snow conditions there were just, uh, we just couldn't bike that last, uh, last day, day and a half ish was not very bikeable. So uh, yeah, it, I'm I'm pushing and just kind of taking and, and stopping and looking around and just kind of realizing that, you know, I'm here, I'll never be here again. And even if you could come back to the exact same spot, you wouldn't be in the same thing, you know, the finishing the first bike expedition to the South Pole. It's a, something that I, I need to enjoy. So I, even though I wanted to go home and be done with this more than more than you can possibly imagine, I was just like, okay, I'm done. I can take the time and look around and see and try to figure out things, try to try to enjoy that the that last few days, that last few hours, that last day. And then when I finally got to the to the South Pole the, to, in into the area there, they, they have a, a section set aside for where the non it's the NGO, the non government camping so, so people that aren't part of the government can go and camp there and, and whatever. And usually they, so what they have is the ALE, they set up a camp there and they have tents and, and a nice warm place to go in and, and some food to greet you with, you know, cookies and chocolate and, and awesome. And you get to talk to people and, and, and enjoy in, in being done and everything. But the problem is, is uh, they run that camp until January 20th. And I got there on January 21st. And they closed on the twentieth. Yeah. In fact, when when Hannah brought that stuff down, it was basically oh, here's some stuff that we're that you can have as we're leaving. And and so so I, you know, I they flew off. There was there was nothing there. You could see, you know, a couple indents in the snow where, where their tents and stuff would be would have been, and and it was there wasn't anything there. So I was there all by myself. And when I got there I I don't even know what time of day it was, but I I remember um, calculating it out that uh, for the people at the South Pole Station, they're running on New Zealand time frame. And so for them, it was like early, early morning. So, you know, they would all be asleep and, and whatever. And so there's no sign of anybody else there. Big building, you know, that's got people in it, but they're all asleep and and then and so I go out there and they've got this uh, ring of flags around a pole in the ground that's a like a you know barber pole type thing with a mirror mirror ball on top. And that's not really the South Pole, that's just kind of a thing they've got set up so you can go there and, and take pictures and, and it's kind of you know a really nice photo op South pole. Uh, the the touristy South Pole. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, and it, it just makes good pictures and stuff like that. But the real South Pole. Is was a little bit beyond that and so I go to where the real south pole is and then it's the stick in the ground You know They've got a stick in the ground marked or in the ice a stick in the ice marking it with a little emblem on the top and and it, it probably I don't know to, to me. That was kind of a um, Very anticlimactic because it's like, you know this big awesome. I see it I'm, I'm there and and I'm so overwhelmed with joy when I when I first saw it and then when I finally got there It's like, okay, I'm here now, what there's nobody around, nothing to do. Um, you know, what and and so I go back to my camp, my tent, and set up my tent. And I, and I had they had um another supply of stuff my stuff that I had this is the stuff I want at the South Pole, like a, a nicer camera and and some things that that I had And so they had that cached somewhere. And I got my tent set up and everything. And I and at that point, I was I was usually pretty drenched in sweat. Um, from my things which is not a good thing, but it's kind of just the condition of what what would happen So I was kind of wettish and stuff and and you get that off and it's just it's so bitter cold there And so I get the tent set up and everything and I know my stuff is out there But it's like it's just too cold. I'm not going out to find it and so then the next day after I dried out and everything, and and, and it's still just as bitter cold. But at that point, it wasn't so bad, and I could go out and find my cash and stuff. And then there was a guy that was skiing to the South Pole, and he he showed up um, that next day. And he, for him, he was in that same state as I was the day before, where it's just so cold because you you know you you're still moist from the workout and everything, and, and not wanting to get out. Whereas for me, at that point, it's like yeah, it's it's still bitter cold, but it's bearable because. I'm not wet anymore
0: <laughs> what an what an awesome thing to to get to the finish line. That's just amazing the next day and you you know the people inside the buildings woke up and everything did you is that when were they surprised to see you there already or did they when did they expect you to be there
1: yeah, they would have known there there's expeditions going in you know from the south pole or from the coast into the south pole they're probably like Oh, maybe four or five, six expeditions that were doing that, doing that, that year. And so there are other people doing it and, and they and the scientists there, they know what's going on and, and they're kind of keeping track of, of what's going on. And not only that, uh, when I, before I enter into the protected areas, you know, in, into that path to go in, he had to make a, a satellite phone call and I call ALE and say, okay, I'm here, I'm entering. And so, and they, they notify uh, the scientists there. So they all know that I'm there. And so not a surprise to them, but, but then they come out and, and they, um, ALE scheduled a, a tour for us. So Vessa and I got to go in and, and uh, tour the station, which is pretty cool to go in and see all that stuff. And one of the most miserable things I've ever done because I I was so used to the cold and, you know, 40 degrees felt more comfortable to me than, than that uh, 70 degrees or however warm it was in there. It was so sickening. I, you know, I, I, I I don't know what it's like to be drunk, but I imagine that's what it was like to be drunk. I just felt so sick to my stomach and I couldn't stand up straight. and, And it just was this awful feeling because it was just way too warm and uncomfortable to be in a place. It was a reasonable <laughs> temperature because you know I, I, I wasn't i was just too used to the cold at that point. I, I couldn't wait to get out of that place because it was, you know, you'd think, Oh yeah, nice, you can get in out of the, out of the cold. It's like, no, I couldn't wait to get back out, out into the cold because I was just so miserable and so off.
0: How how did the expedition and you know the notoriety that came with it, how did that affect your bike business?
1: I closed my bike shop. <laughs> it it I don't think it really helped my bike shop uh, much. I mean I, I did get some publicity out of it, but I my problem with the bike shop was mostly that uh I'm not a good I'm I'm not good at uh being a businessman. I'm I'm too too much of a pushover, I guess. And so I give gave away too much stuff. I was I, and and I and I know that it's bad and and that you know you can help more people if you if you stay profitable, but but, you know, I, I did things that I was like, well, this isn't the best business thing, but I'm helping somebody. And so I don't care. That's what I'm going to do. And so, you know, I was losing money year after year after year on, on the bike shop and it wasn't uh, sustainable. And so, but also at that time, you know, I, the bike shop was a lot of work and, and I had put a lot into it and stuff and and there's a certain point at which it's like, okay, I'm ready to move off of that and and do something else. And so, So it, uh, you know, I thought maybe it could help uh, with marketing on the bike shop. Uh, It didn't help uh, as much as I had wanted it to, and and I ended up closing the bike shop. You have had since this happened, and this was
0: um, these five years ago. uh, Now you still have some numbness in your feet. Is that right, or has that gone Mm -hmm. away?
1: Yeah. No, my feet. Feet are still having a, a numbness. It's it's kind of hard to describe. When I when I first got back, it was kind of like when you go to the dentist and your face is all numb and it feels all fat and puffy. My hands were like that. And my feet were like that when I first got back. Um, the hands. I think are all okay. I mean, I I have a lot of uh, nerve damage in my hands from pocket knives and things like that. Anyway, you know, (laughs) as a kid getting cut and and different things like that. So my fingertips are not the greatest, but when I first got back, like I was, I was a computer programmer before I opened the bike shop. When I first got back, I had a really hard time um, doing anything with the computer because my fingers, the numbness, it was hard to type and, and, uh, and the numbness and lack of circulation i guess in the fingertips uh, they didn't work very well on on touchscreens when i first got back too. and then my feet were 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 basically numb i you know i i got back and it's winter and i could go out and you know take the garbage out to the street and stuff barefoot and, and it wouldn't bother me at all because my feet were just completely numb they've come back to where they're they're not that numb anymore but as if when i walk around barefoot i can still it's still a weird numbness that uh i have in them and and they just feel a little weird and and most time i i get used to it and i forget about it but uh, when i walk around barefoot uh, it it frequently reminds me oh yeah your feet are still numb
0: oh yeah that south pole thing that's (laughs) yeah
1: so i don't know if it'll if they'll ever fully come back i actually kind of um i did some cold damage to them on a scouting uh, Klondike Derby uh, camp out where I I got my feet too wet and cold uh, one night. And so I, my feet had poor circulation going into it. And then uh, when you're biking, sitting on a seat, I think um, cuts off some blood flow. And then also pedaling. If you pedal a long time, you know, your feet tend to go numb. And so doing pedaling that long, every day for, you know, 51 days and then add into the cold, you know, I think all that just did enough damage. And so, so my feet don't do well with the cold. I like going out and, and biking with the fat bike in the snow, but I don't do it much anymore because if I get out in the cold, my, my feet uh, get cold really quick and, and, uh, they turn all black and purple and, and so, so my feet don't handle uh, the cold very much, um, very well anymore, and and uh, that's part of why I'm trying to move to Florida. <laughs> you,
0: you put your body through so much trauma for that 51 days and the extreme temperatures. I guess that's it's understandable that there would be some kind of lasting effects.
1: Yeah, and so so I figure I've had enough winter for for a lifetime. Although it was summer while I was down there. but I've had enough winter for a lifetime. So it's time for me to find some, some uh, good tropical things to do. So I'm staying in Florida right now, but I have a house in Utah and I need to get that somebody to buy my house in Utah. So that then I can buy something smaller and more affordable here in uh, Florida. One extreme to the other, I guess. Well, yeah, (laughs) what I really want to do is I want to get a sailboat and my, my, my vision for that is uh, um, to be able to go and sell that to, uh, different, different places, um, where there are places where I can do, uh, some helping, helping people with like uh, hurricane relief or just with, uh, you know, different levels of, uh, things you can do for humanitarian service and be able to sell to some place and do, uh, do some humanitarian service project and then, uh, and then sell to another place and, and do that over and over. And that's, that's my, fantasy, my my vision, what I what I want to do, we'll see what I actually am able to accomplish. My my wife doesn't want to live on a sailboat. Ah uh, that sounds like a pretty good retirement plan to me. Yeah, and and I can do it if I sell my house and, and buy a sailboat that would be much cheaper or buy a smaller house. You know, I don't have to go back to work anymore. But with the house I have right now I can't I can't afford to be retired and keep the house I have.
0: Looking back on it now is there anything that you would have done differently?
1: Yeah. I wouldn't have, uh, dropped off so much food at the halfway point and wasted that food. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I don't know. You needed
0: that at the end.
1: Yeah, I did. And so, so, you know, there's, it's hard, hard to, I mean, yeah, there's awful, obviously uh, a lot of things I learned and could improve on. I think somebody else, hopefully somebody else can improve it. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't bother bringing the panniers to start with. So, so there's some different ways I would set up set up my sled. I talked to some guy. There was a guy that uh, wanted to do what I did, and and I was talking to him. And I was saying, well, you know, the easier way to do it um, would be to start at the South Pole and go to the coast. Now, nobody really cares. You know, it's like if you want something and people are going to like, "Ooh, cool, you, you know, you're the first person to bike to the South Pole. They're not going to care if you bike from the South Pole to the coast. But if you bike from the coast to the South Pole, they're going to care about that. And so, I mean, that's the real, the real expedition is to go from the coast to the South Pole. But if you want to do it easier, you start at the pole and you go the, to the coast because then you're downhill with the tailwind and uh and then the, the other thing is is like if you could get more floats so wider tires and so he built up a custom bike that was like two by two tires wide you know my my tires were like five inches wide and he took two of those and stuck them side by side and so make essentially a 10 inch wide um bike and stuff and and he tried to do that going the opposite direction but uh um it didn't work out too well for him he uh he ended up being picked up and and flown out and uh, sent me a a message saying, um, well, his wife sent me a message saying <laughs> how how impressed he was with uh, with what I had done because because she she said he was you know a, a super tough guy and, and and it really you know just the difficulty of it anyway so you know I'm, I'm not trying to say I'm better than him and he was worse or whatever anything like that because the conditions everybody's got different things and and maybe the setup for the bike just wasn't the right setup and, and whatever. But, uh, yeah, there, there's some things I would, I would definitely try to see if I could get a little bit wider tires so you can get a little bit more float. There's, there's a lady who's uh, planning on going to it. She was planning on doing it the same year I did, but she's still working on trying to bike, to get the funding to be able to bike to the South pole. And she's got uh, a two wheel drive bike that she's going to uh, try to use. And and it's interesting, and I've always said I don't think that's a good idea. I think there's way too many mechanical issues and weight, and and I I think it's not the right choice. But I could be wrong because it could be that having propulsion at the front and back would make it so you could bike things that were very difficult for me. I don't know. Um, It'll be interesting to see if she actually does it. I think it's the wrong choice. But Eric thought that the sleds was the wrong choice, and I think he was wrong. And so, so, you know, just because I think it's wrong, and I think it wouldn't—I think that um, two-wheel drive is a bad idea—doesn't necessarily mean it is.
0: <laughs> yep, she might find differently.
1: Yeah, and and it'll be cool to see somebody. You know, it's, nobody else has really done done that. There, there's been a couple other little bit of biking expeditions out there, but nobody's actually tried to go from the coast to the South Pole by bike. Since I did it, when, and that was five years ago. Maybe they look at what I went through and said oh, that was stupid. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> yeah.
0: There's the there's the purpose that your video blog serves that you can scare other people away from from even trying it when they see what you were going through.
1: Well, yeah, and I also <laughs> think I may be wrong, but I think if I uh, told Ale I want to do this now, and they would look at okay, what have you done? I think they probably would tell me um, no, they're not going to let me do it until I get some more. Polar experience and some uh, crevasse training, and I think in part that fault because when I did it, I I opened up a crevasse, and I think somebody else pushing a bike may have opened up a crevasse too. I'm not positive on that, and so I think they're a little bit spooked about that, about because there there are definitely crevasse dangers that uh, are worse for being on a bike than than skiing because you do have to get off and push at points and and Extra risk, and so I know. And there's another guy I've talked to that's that's trying to uh, do an expedition from coast to coast on a bike, and I know that they said, uh, and and he's got some pretty good experience. And they uh, and they told him, no, you can't do this until you go off and get some uh, crevasse training. So I think maybe they're being a little more uh, careful about that because of problems that I did. But but the reality is, is the thing that usually stops people from doing this is just the sheer cost of it.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. Dan, this is an awesome story. I, I love hearing stories like like this. And I'm going to have. I know you you are all over the web. You've got uh, your YouTube channel. You on Facebook. You've got a Wikipedia page, and of course your blog that that documented everything throughout, as well as video uh, documentation throughout the trip. I'm going to have all of that linked on the show notes for this episode. So people can go and watch that and get a, get even a better idea of what you were going through. I think it's just, it's pretty awesome. And I appreciate you uh, sharing your story with us.
1: Well, thank you. It, it, it's always fun to share it. I, I guess in some ways I feel like that's kind of uh, one of the obligations that uh, you have after doing something is, is you have to write a book and you have to share it with with everybody that you can. So, yeah, I've got a book. I've got my videos that I put together that go through um, the whole expedition and, and then my blog that is out there. Yeah.
0: Excellent. So uh, we'll get all that out there. And um, good luck and uh, have a great retirement in Florida. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode. My goal for each show is to introduce you to people and stories that you just won't find on other podcasts. If you want to help support the show, you just need to subscribe and that way you'll never miss an episode. You can click on any of the subscribe buttons on the website, which is what was that You'll see all the links right there at the top where you can subscribe directly to this show on Apple podcasts, Google podcasts, Google play music, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, or on whatever app you use to catch your podcasts. And you'll see there are also links to Twitter and Instagram, so you can follow us there, and I hope you do. And if you really want to connect with me and get in on the discussion with other listeners to this show, you can join our private Facebook group. You can find that at whatwasthatlike.com forward slash Facebook. And of course, you can always email me directly at scott at what was thatlike.com or just go to the website and click on contact. I'd love to hear what you think of this episode or a previous episode. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you on the next show where we'll once again ask the question, what was that like?